So we're in Exodus 4. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous, like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O oh, my Lord, please send somebody else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. 
And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. It's good to be with you all this morning. Our current sermon series here at CBC is on the book of Exodus. And why we're going through the book of Exodus is really so that we can trace the journey of Israel from slavery to freedom, and so that we can also trace the journeys in our own lives from slavery to freedom as well. So this morning, we're taking a closer look at the lengthy interaction between Moses and God and the events that immediately followed it. So we're going to look at God's calling, Moses' doubts, and Moses' return to Egypt. So God's calling, Moses' doubts, and Moses' return. And as we look at each of these pieces of the story, my hope is that for us this morning that we would be able to see some of these things in our own lives, that we'd be, see, we'd be able to see aspects of our own calling, our own doubts, and our own return to God. And so what we're going to ultimately see is that God's response to our fear and doubts is the same response that it is to Moses' fear and doubts, and that's that he makes his family. So let me pray for us, and uh, we'll get going. Father, thank you so much for your presence with us this morning. Encourage us through your word, convict us of our sin, and draw us closer to you. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. So I want to begin just by briefly uh, looking at, again, what Pastor Doug preached on last week, and that's the burning bush, the call of Moses. So I just want to read two verses that we're going to look at, and these kind of epitomize what Moses' call was exactly. The first one, it says, uh, God says, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because they're taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. So God says that. He says, I've seen you. I know the affliction that people are going through, and I've heard their cries. And then God goes on to say to Moses, come, I'll send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So as Pastor Doug explained really, really well last week, Moses didn't in particular have very many good skills that you could, that would qualify him for this position. If you look at Moses' resume, what you'd see is that he's a bad public speaker and that he had murdered someone. So I would more consider those like anti-skills. The job is to lead the people out of Israel to be a spiritual leader, and his skills are a wanted murderer who's bad at public speaking. And so when, you're, when your resume looks like that, you, and when you submit that resume for a job, you probably don't feel quite so good about how things are going to go. And so it would be easy for Moses to look around and start to feel like God can't actually be calling me to this work because this is who I am. I'm terrible at public speaking, and I've, I've killed someone. How could God possibly call me to anything? So the first thing I want us to just realize this morning as we look at this text is that often our brokenness and the realization of how broken we are is what prohibits us from being willing to step into that calling that God has on our lives. I think that's, that's how Moses feels right here. He feels so broken 
that God could never really use him for his purposes. And a lot of times we look at Moses and we're like, come on, man, just get, get going with this whole trip. Like, you have an important job to do, just get going. But I want us to be patient with Moses, too, and say, he's a broken man who's made a lot of mistakes. And now God comes calling him, saying, here's this amazing thing I have for you to do. Of course he would be like, not me. I'm terrible at public speaking, and I've killed someone. Now, the other thing that I want us to notice about Moses is that core to the Christian doctrine is this idea that we're made in the image of God. And this idea that we're made in the image of God is, means that every single one of us brings something unique to the table. Every single one of us has different gifts, different, a different type of personality, different quirks, different like eccentricities. We're all super, super different. And so what each of us brings is different to the table. And so as human beings, part of our call as Christians is to acknowledge that every single person has intrinsic value for what they bring individually. And that was true for Moses, but it's true for us as well. And so when we look to our left and we look to our right and we go, I'm not as smart as that person. I don't work as hard as that person. I'm not as gifted as they are. When we look around and want to do that, we have to remind ourselves of this core doctrine to Christianity, that we are made in God's image and we're unique in that. And so because of that, when we feel these inadequacies, when we feel our brokenness, what we need to do is bring that to God. And so we'll see in this passage that what Moses does is he brings his doubts and questions to God. And that's what we can do as well. So verse 1 Right at the start of the chapter, Moses brings his first objection to God. God has placed this calling on his life. You're going to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. First up, Moses says, they won't believe me and they won't listen to my voice. Moses has a point. God is asking him to tell the Israelites to just walk out of the most powerful country on earth. There's like hundreds of thousands of people. And Moses' task is just to go in and say, all right, guys, we're just going to walk right on out of here. Understandably so, Moses goes, they're not going to believe me, and they're not going to listen to my voice. So God responds by providing three signs. And so here are the three signs. If you're looking at your text, you can see them right there. Lori read them for us. First one, he takes the staff. Now, I don't have Pastor Doug's staff again. But he takes his staff, and, he, and, he, and God has Moses throw it on the ground, and it becomes a serpent. And I don't know how that would have played out. I'm not a big snake guy. But then God says, grab the serpent, and when you grab it, it will become a staff again. And that is exactly what happens. Pretty cool. Next one, like sign number two, um, I should have worn a suit jacket, but God says, all right, take your hand. It looks good. It looks clean. You washed your hands recently. Put it in your cloak and bring it back out again. And now it's covered in leprosy, which is like a really terrible skin condition. So he does it, pulls it out, and it's leprous, which is really, really bad. I preached on this like a couple weeks ago. Leprosy made you unclean. It meant you couldn't have friends, basically. It was really bad. Don't want to not have friends. So he then puts it back in his hand, pulls it out, and it's clean. So that's exciting. Sign number two. Sign number three, though, is different than the other two signs. Because in the first two signs, it goes staff, serpent, staff. And then in the second sign, it goes um, clean, leprous, clean. The third sign, though, there's only one switch. And so God tells Moses, grab some water out of the Nile River. 
And when you pull it out, you're going to throw it on the ground, and it's going to become dried blood. And that's it. There's no, there's no coming back to, there's no coming back to water. It's just dried blood. And so, what we see in that is that water naturally is a marker of life. We're like, we're made of 70, 80 percent water or something. Water is something we need every single day. It's this marker of life. And Moses' third sign is to take water and to turn it into blood. And we'll see as we go along in this passage the importance of blood. But just note that to start. So there can be a lot of confusion in our world naturally about signs and miracles and what their purpose is and how often we should see them and all of those kind of things. And I don't have time for a super lengthy discourse on that, um, nor am I qualified for it. But the point I want to make is a point that a couple, many theologians have made before me, and that's that when you look at signs and miracles in the Bible, when you look at the signs that Moses Moses exhibits right here, signs and miracles are not about like pulling a magic bunny out of a hat. It's not like an abracadabra, Pastor Doug starts to levitate. It's, those aren't the kind of signs that we're talking about. Signs and miracles in scripture are always about the restoration of the natural order, not the suspension of the natural order. So what I mean by that is if, you, if a miracle is going to happen and God's going to do it, it isn't about Pastor Doug levitating. It's not about a magic bunny getting pulled out of a hat because that would just be the normal laws of nature getting broken. There's no purpose to it. But when we see signs and miracles in Scripture, think every single one of Jesus' miracles in the New Testament, every single one, they're about people being fed, they're about, they're about people being healed and restored, and they're about God being glorified. And that's what miracles and signs are about. They're about the restoration of the natural order, not the suspension of the natural, natural order. So when we come to our text this morning and we go, ah, maybe some of us are like, yes, signs and miracles, awesome. And maybe some of us are like, I don't know about signs and miracles. This is a little weird. What we should always note is that they are about restoring the natural order. And so that means God's going to do something and make it the way it's supposed to be. We all have this intrinsic belief as humans, I think, that when we see sickness, when we see starvation, when we see death, when we see those things, we intrinsically as humans go, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Everyone intrinsically feels that. That's why, like, Greg and I are talking in our class, that's why there's like a, a UN human rights agreement. Because everyone intrinsically goes, that's not the way it's supposed to be for humans. And so when we see signs and miracles in life, in scripture, in Jesus' walk on earth, what we see are that they're about restoring these things. So that's Moses' objection number two, number one. Objection number two, God deals with really, really quickly. Moses comes in verse 10, if you're looking at your, at your Bibles, Moses says, I'm slow of speech and of tongue. God deals with this one really quickly and swiftly, and here's what God says to Moses. He says, who made man's mouth? God then promises his own presence in verse 12. He says, I will be with your mouth, and I will teach you what you shall speak. So that's objection number two. Moses says, I'm, I'm, not, I'm slow of speech and of tongue, and God just says, I made your mouth. The thing you're speaking with, I made it. If your problem has to do with how your mouth is going to work, I'm pretty sure since I designed it, I can figure it out. 
So that's objection number two. <laughs> objection number three, it, this is where finally, finally Moses, he just lays it all out there. He says, God, please send someone else. I don't know if you're like me, but I've done this before. You kind of lay out like objection after objection for why you can't do something. You're like, oh, I have this good reason. I have that good reason. And someone meets every single objection with a good reason. And you're like, shoot, I'm all out of reasons. And so then you just kind of cross your arms and go, I don't want to. <laughs> kind of like a little kid or like a grown 27-year-old man. Um, this is what we often do. We just cross our arms and we say, I don't want to. And this is where God actually gets upset. Uh, there aren't a ton of passages like this in Scripture, but if you look at verse 14, what God says is, um, it says that the wrath of God was kindled against Moses. And there, this doesn't happen, this happens sometimes in Scripture. It doesn't often happen when he's working one-on-one -on -one with someone like this. And I, I, what I'd like to propose is the reason why God gets upset here is because what he had just promised was his own presence. He just promised his own presence. He just said, listen, I will even go with you. I'm going to go with you. And Moses still says, I just, I don't want to. Please send somebody else. I think this is why, why God gets upset with Moses, because he'd accommodated every single one of his requests. He'd gone down the line, he's given him signs, he's given him a staff, he's given him everything he could, including himself, and Moses still just says, I don't, I don't want to do it. So the last admission he gives to Moses, though, and I think this is really, really cool, the last admission that Moses gets, the last thing God decides to give Moses, is another person. It's someone to do it with. I really love that because God, God is essentially acknowledging how hard it is, the calling that he's called Moses to do, and he's acknowledging how hard our calling is too. He's saying, I'm with you. I've given you these signs. But even more than that, I'm even going to give you a brother to come alongside you and to do this with you. Now, we see that God provides these signs for his people, and you might fairly be asking at this point, so if, if we're trying to, trying to line this up between us and Moses and say, we have an experience like Moses, we have a calling, and we have doubts and questions, and we need to move towards God in those, naturally, the question for us would be, well, what signs and things do we get? What do we get to sign to us that God is present with us? What do we get? And so I just want to super briefly highlight five of the things that I think we can look at as signs for us today. Firstly, baptism. Now, a lot of you are probably wondering, what the heck does baptism have to do with any of this? Baptism is a public declaration of our faith. And while that's definitely true, that baptism is a public declaration of our faith, if we look at Jesus' baptism in the New Testament, what do we see God say? He says, you are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. And so when we think about baptism, it is a sign of God's love for us because in our baptism, God says to us, you are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. 
So that's sign number one for, of God's love for us, baptism. Sign number two, communion. Along the same line, in communion, we get to remember who Jesus is. We get to remember his sacrifice on the cross. But even more than that, Jesus is spiritually present with us in communion. And he draws us closer to himself. There's two things that Jesus told us we should do when he left. Baptize people and take communion. Those are the two things. Theologians call them dominical. They mean Jesus said, do these things, baptism and communion. So these are both signs for us. The third sign is scripture. This is why we spend like 30 some odd minutes every Sunday morning going through a passage of scripture. Because scripture is the primary way that God speaks to us today. Scripture is God's word and it's a sign for us of God appearing in our lives today. It's still relevant. It still works and lives and is active in our life. Yet, God doesn't only speak through scripture. Don't count me out yet. There's prayer too. Prayer is the fourth sign. In prayer, we have a back and forth with God. Every good relationship has talking and it has listening. If you've ever been in a relationship where there's just talking to you, it's not a great relationship. You should probably get out of there. I mean, it's good to listen, but you want to you be able to share as well. And so God gets to do that as well. There's an interplay in prayer. We talk and God listens and then we listen and God speaks. That's prayer. That's the fourth sign. And then this last sign, fifth sign, people. I'm going to come back to this over and over again, that broken people like you and me get to show God's love to each other. And so when we gather with others, when we hear the testimonies of changed lives, we know God's presence and kindness towards us. So baptism, communion, scripture, prayer, and people. Those are the five signs. Now, if you notice what Moses was interested in, he was interested in showing the people that God had appeared to him. That was his concern. He was like, how are they going to know that God has appeared to me? And God gives them the three signs. And so I want to propose to us this morning that God has given us those five signs, and it's not an exhaustive list, so that we could show people that God has appeared to us. God gave us those five signs so that we could show people that God has appeared to us. Now, if you glance down at your Bibles, there's a break in the text between verses 17 and 18. And poor Lori, I was thinking about only making her read Exodus 4, 1 through 17, because it starts to get a little weird, if you noticed, after verse 18. So, but I was like, you know, I'm preaching on the whole thing. I'll make her say weird things and we'll just roll with it. Um, and I saw some heads kind of perk up when she said one or two. It's just like, oh, what did she just say? Um, but it's God's word and it's given for our good. So we're okay. So there's this break between verse 17 and 18. And essentially this break, I think in narratives like this in the Old Testament, the break is essentially the author saying something has ended and now we don't know what's going to happen next. So I want us to, to realize the tension here in the text. Moses has these three signs, and, he's, and, and he has his brother Aaron, and he has God's presence, but we, we don't know how he's going to respond. Moses still could have just kept his arms folded and said, I'm not going. But what we get to see is that Moses, in verse 18, here's what he says to his father-in-law. He says, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. 
You see what he does there, though? He says, please let me go back so that I can see if they're alive. God said, go free them from Egypt. And Moses, his little cop-out is, let me just go see if they're alive. If they're not, I'll just come right back here. I'll just come right back here. I'll start working on this farm again. I'll start tending my sheep. But right after that, Moses... God lays it out to Moses, and this is the most important phrase in the whole chapter. And here's what it says. He says, But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. This is God's claim on the people of Israel. They are my children. This is God's claim on Moses as well. You are my child. You are my firstborn son. So we see here that God's ultimate response to the fear and doubt, it was signs, it was his presence, but ultimately, his sign is, you are family. When I was finishing my senior year of college, I went to Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, and when I was finishing my senior year, um, I was making seminary plans. I, I was thinking I wanted to work in the pastorate, and so I thought, you know, I should go to seminary, and so I looked at seminaries kind of all across the country. I looked at one in California, because the weather's great. I looked at one in St. Louis, um, that was a denominational thing, and I looked at one in New England, Gordon-Conwell, and... Um, I love New England. My wife and I, Grace and I are from New Hampshire. And so I decided I'm going to Gordon-Conwell. That's where I'm going to go to seminary. Um, I love Chicago. It was great and all, but I didn't love the city and I didn't love the flatlands. And so I was like, I got to get, got to get home. So as I'm making that decision, I send in my acceptance letter. I put in my deposit and I was over for dinner at, uh, my pastor and mentor's house, um, a guy named Dave. And as we're praying for the meal that we're about to have, um, we're praying, and, and so our eyes are closed, and Dave prays. He says, God, and I pray you would guide Tyler's seminary decision. And I kind of like cracked one eye open and was like, what is he talking about? I've already decided to go to Gordon-Conwell. He knows that. Like, what is, what is he talking about? And then, naturally, as we're sitting on the couch after dinner, just sitting around, and talking, Dave looks me in the eye and he says, I think you should stay in Chicago. And if you stay, you'll be family. And there was a lot of different things that happened in that decision as I decided whether to stay in Chicago or go home. But ultimately, I kept coming back to my pastor and mentor's words where he said, if you stay, you'll be family. And I think as human beings, this is at the core of our desire. At the core of who we are, we want to belong, and we want to be loved and accepted. And the closest we possibly get to this is in a family. And so what I wanted was to, that if someone knew all the worst things about me, if someone knew every little terrible thing I'd thought, every terrible thing I'd done, if they knew the very worst things about me, would they still love me and would they still accept me? And I think being family in this world is the closest we ever get to this reality. This is the type of pure love and acceptance that God offers Moses right here in this passage. He says, if you go, if you come with me, you'll be family. 
This is what I think we all want so deep down. We just want someone to call us family and to say, it doesn't matter what you do or what you've done or what you could possibly do, you're my family. And that's like a full stop. There's nothing else that could possibly get in the way. You're adopted as a child of God. And in Ephesians it says, those who are far off have been brought near. Those who are alienated have been reconciled. And that's the good news of the gospel. That's what's offered to Moses here. So this is God's response to fear and doubt. You are family. Now, I want to pause for a moment, though, and acknowledge that many of us haven't had positive family experiences, especially with parents, especially with mothers and fathers. We haven't all had parents who or family who have lived up to that high calling. And so these experiences and memories, they they don't just disappear. We live with them forever. But, But when God begins the process of calling you a child of God, when God begins the process of remaking and restoring your view of what it means to be a child, it's okay to struggle with him on this. It's okay to say... God, I don't, I can't make sense of my life experience and then of who you say you are. Those things don't always line up. There's, there's one woman who's really dear to my heart who had an abusive alcoholic father and when she prayed her like sinner's prayer, so to speak, when she prayed her prayer like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow Jesus, this is what she prayed. She prayed, God, if you are real and good, then prove yourself because you don't have a good track record. That's a sinner's prayer, though. That's just a little bit of faith. That's just a little bit of faith to say, God, I don't even know if I can believe that you're good, but I want to. And so would you please just show up? God can take even the smallest amount of faith. He can take even the smallest amount of faith and he can do beautiful things with it. And so if that's you this morning, I don't mean to try to bring you from all the way over here, all the way over here. But I just want you to take a little step closer to a good father because the Lord is a better father than any earthly father. Whether you had an amazing one or a terrible one, he's a better father than any earthly father you've ever had. And he's going to love you more deeply and he's going to forgive you and he's going to give you purpose in this life and in the life to come. So what God makes clear in this story is that when we accept his invitation of relationship with him, we go straight to being family. There's no intermediate period where he tests us out. He doesn't see how our behavior is going and then try to decide if he really wants to adopt us. We're just in. And throughout the entire New Testament, the church is described as what? It's the family of God. And so... I think one of the important takeaways this morning should be that if we are God's family, then we, just like Israel, need to act like that. Because as God's family, inclusion in CBC is none other than inclusion in God's family. Inclusion in a local church is you saying, I am here, I am a part of God's family. 
And so church unity, even though it's really, really hard, has like a massive cosmic spiritual significance, meaning it's way bigger than just this. It's way bigger than like the 130 people in this room. Being a united church is showing God's family to the world. And so I want to ask these questions of how we can become more of a family. Now, I've only been here for a month, so I don't pretend to have any of the answers. But like Pastor Doug was just sharing, how can we be a family if we aren't joining small groups, if we aren't sharing meals together, having fit community, having people in our homes? So I want to challenge us to do more of life together to look more like a family. Because when we look like a family, then people want to be a part of this family. Now, I get it. We're all super different. If you, again, if you look to your left and right, or maybe you need to look behind you, you're going to see people that are really different than you. There aren't a ton of, like, tall, outdoorsy people who like to run, bike, and swim here. I think I'm the only one. Uh, Jim Carruthers is close. Um, he's not quite as tall as I am. I'm working on Greg Phelan. We're in progress. But... <laughs> But here's the thing, if everyone was like you, it would, it would be weird. It wouldn't be good, it would be weird. This would be some sort of like super Christian triathlon group. And that, I know that sounds good to me, but it sounds terrible to all of you. So we're not going to try to make everyone be like us. What we're going to do is show God's love, show God's image in this world by being different, but yet being united. This is how we do, this is how we show God's love to this world. Because when we all image God, coming back to that idea that we are made in the image of God, when we image God all separately and come together, that's how we show we're the family. That's how we show we are God's family and we are the church. And Moses had a unique calling that he had to wrestle with. And each of us have unique callings that we have to wrestle with. Now, this is a hard idea sometimes to think about, but we all have a different personality, have different strengths. We have different weaknesses, different quirks. We all bring something different to the table. And so we all have a unique calling. The people who are in your life are a unique subset of people that aren't in specifically anyone else's life. And so when we think about how we are called to be God's presence in this world, each of us have a unique role to play in that. And if you want to talk more about how your gifts might fit into that, I'd love to sit down with you or Pastor Doug would to say, how can I use my gifts to work in this world? But I want you to at least walk away this morning knowing that you are God's plan A. Just like Moses was God's plan A. There were way easier ways he could have done things way easier he could have brought them out of egypt in a much smoother way but instead he went and chose this broken person and said i'm going to use you and you're going to lead these people what he said was moses you are my firstborn son and israel those are my people those are my family and so you're going to bring them out of slavery god paid the price for you and god redeemed you and so you are part of God's family. All right, so now we get to the weird stuff. The really weird stuff. So here's, um, here's what happens. Now, right after God threatens to kill Pharaoh's firstborn son, if you remember, he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill your firstborn son if you don't let my people Israel go. Right after that, here's what it says in verse 24. It says, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. 
Then Zipporah, who's his, Moses' wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Anybody want to take a crack? <laughs> So so this is why I'm really thankful that there are a lot of uh, Christians throughout history who have written a lot of uh, commentaries, they call them, on Scripture and have tried to explain this away. Because I'm not going to pretend that it, with my expertise and my Hebrew knowledge, I just like worked my way in and figured it out. I'm going to tell you what the smartest Christians throughout history have heard, and we're going to roll with what they say. So... Circumcision, if you remember, it's the Old Testament marker for how you enter into God's community. So there's always a marker for how, how do you show that you're a part of God's family. And in the Old Testament, it was circumcision. It was only done to the men. But because in the Old Testament, you have men functioning as the head of the house, that like covered the whole family. And so when you had your child circumcised, that was you showing like, I am a part of God's family. So now Moses, then, as an Israelite man, should have had his son circumcised. And so what I want to put forth this morning is that by Moses not having his son circumcised, this is essentially Moses saying, I'm not a part of God's family. I don't want to affiliate with all those people who are in Egypt who are enslaved. I'm not a part of God's family anymore. I'm out, I'm living with the Midianites, and I married a Midianite woman. I married someone who wasn't a part of God's family, and I don't want anything to do with it. So why then does God seek to kill Moses? For two reasons. First, it, it would teach Moses that if he didn't show that he was part of God's family through circumcision, then he deserved to die for his sin just like everyone else. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. We are all sinful people, just like Moses, and so we all deserve to die. And so Moses deserved to die just for his sin, just like everyone else. And so Moses, his, his calling in life was to be a mediator between God and Israel. A mediator meaning someone who like reconciles two parties, who brings them together. But what we see in this little passage is that Moses needed to be reconciled to God before he could reconcile the Israelites to God. Moses needed to be reconciled to God as well. And so as a sinful man, he needed reconciliation and he needed a mediator just like who God was calling him to be. Hebrews 9.22 says this. It says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The blood of Moses' child is what saves Moses. He is a bridegroom of blood. How are the Israelites saved? The blood of the firstborn. The blood of the Passover lamb, which is slaughtered in order to save the Israelite people. Then how are we saved? By the blood of God's own firstborn son. You see, the firstborn son had a special significance. The firstborn son would epitomize the future of the family. And so when Moses' firstborn son is circumcised to save him, 
God is then showing that he's going to use his own firstborn son to save all of us. And that's the good news of the gospel, that we are saved by the blood of the lamb. We are saved by a God who didn't even spare his own firstborn son. The blood of the firstborn causes forgiveness of sins. Now, don't get me wrong. God could have just killed Moses. He was a sinful person just like the rest of us. But God allowed Zipporah to mediate. He allowed his wife to mediate. If you notice, the text says, it says, God sought to kill Moses. It's kind of weird. Like, he, he didn't just kill him. He sought to kill him. There's like an extra verb in there. Like, God was like, hey, I think I'm going to maybe kill you. So let's see if you do anything. That's essentially what's happening here. God is providing this sort of temporal opening for Zipporah to come in and save Moses. He's providing an opening for that to happen. And so once again, I want to point this out too. Once again, Moses owes his life to a really godly woman. Think about Moses with the Hebrew midwives. They save him for no reason. Only by the grace of God does Moses survive because of these, these midwives. And then again, He's saved by, these, um, by Pharaoh's handmaidens who pull him out of the river. And now we have a third time that Moses is saved by a godly woman when Zipporah, his wife, mediates for him. So Moses owes his entire life to a series of godly women who have mediated for him. And our last reminder in this last portion of the text is that it just goes to show how big of a deal sin is. In our culture today, sin isn't like a really hot idea. It's not like a great topic that people are really excited about. It's like a taboo word because what it's saying is something is wrong with you. Not just with the things that you're doing, but with you at the core. You have a problem and it needs to be fixed. And so, Moses' problem is that he deserves to die. Remember, he's a, he's a murderer. He deserves to die just like the rest of us. But he gets to have a mediator, Zipporah, save his life then. And then Moses is saved by the exact same grace that we are as well, by the blood of Jesus. So if we, like Moses, accept God's calling on our lives, we accept the shedding of blood in order to solve our sin problem, where does that leave us? I love how this passage ends in verse 31. It says, And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshipped. They bowed their heads and they worshipped. How beautiful is that? That's the natural end to all of this. That's the natural end to us using our gifts for the glory of God is that we would all collectively bow our heads and worship. That's how, that's how, that's the end of this. And that is how God visits people with his presence in this broken world. You sharing your testimony of God's work in your life, this is how people are going to come to know Jesus. It's not going to be through little Christianese trite sayings, but it's going to be through them learning to trust you and you pointing them to the one whom you trust. That's the essence of evangelism. That's the essence of our call, is to learn to build trust with others and then to point them to the one whom we trust with everything. And so our call this morning is to be a part of expanding God's family. This is what Moses got called to do, and it's what we get called to do as well. 
we get called to realize in further and deeper ways just how beloved we are as God's children. And then as we do that, we get to spread that out to others. We get to show them the one whom we trust, who is a good, good father. And if God's going to work in our town, in our community, in our church, in this world, one of the first things we're going to do is we all have our arms crossed like this. And we keep saying, I don't want to. We all know little things that we know God is calling us to, even right now, to love some person better, to forgive someone, to serve in this way, to give in this way. We all have little things that we know God is asking us to do, and yet we kind of have our arms crossed like this, and we're still just going, I don't want to. And so our first step as a church this morning, as God's children, is going to be to unfold our arms and say, God, I'm willing. If you can use the broken vessel that was Moses, if you can use a wanted murderer who's terrible at public speaking, you can use me. But praise God, we have all these people with us who we can do that with. And thankfully, God, he gives us those signs. He gives us his presence, but he also gives us brothers and sisters to do it with. Let me pray for us. Father, show us what you are calling us to do. Speak to us, comfort us, and encourage us. We love you, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Please rise for the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace today and every day after. Go in peace.